You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. The glory of your presence is what our hearts long for. You know, probably, I mean, you know, that's obviously a desire of my heart, but really I think until I started reading through the book of Ezekiel, Uh, This idea of the glory of God has just captured my heart and soul. You know, it's within this this book that we hear right from page one about the glory of God. That heavenly throne room scene, the divine council and God sitting in the midst of his cherubim. Those divine throne room guardians high and lifted up, encircled in flame and wheel and fire. Just amazing, the thought of how our God is. Awesome. And even terrifying is His glory. And hopefully as we've been journeying through Ezekiel, you too have seen how dreadful it is to be on the wrong side of the Lord. He is the God who is for sure rich in patience, but He is also not a God to be trifled with. Right? And to catch a glimpse of his glory should put every one of us on our face to the ground in worship. With that in mind, how was last week for you? If you remember out of reverence for God, did you take time to follow up on what we learned in chapters 33 and 34 about repentance? Sadly and dangerously, when we fail to follow through on obediences that are demanded of us from the text of Holy Scripture, I think something settles in. We become apathetic and we diminish the Lord in our hearts, in our thinking. Not just in our imaginations, but that translates then into our lifestyles. Again, the lesson from the prophets, all the prophets, in fact, is that it is a dreadful thing to be on the wrong side of the Lord. And one should always attempt and try desperately to walk in obedience and also repentance as the way to compensate for our lack of obedience. So have you taken time this last week to be with Him, to view your sins seriously enough that Repentance is the natural outflow of your heart toward him. Have you taken him and his view of sin seriously enough that repentance becomes an ongoing part of your lifestyle? Well, let's pray before we get into God's word again. Holy God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the prophets. I imagine, as it was in the days of those prophets, that the people of Israel, hearing their prophetic messages, would turn away in disappointment and burden, thinking, we want to hear a good message from these prophets. That is probably why so many of them were spurned and some of them were even killed for their messages. But Lord, we want to today make a very affirmative action in our heart and our soul and our mind to give ourselves over to you in these moments of being in Ezekiel so that, Lord, you would speak and we would listen. Lord, help our obedience 
to be full and robust and responsive to your word, always. But also help us learn to walk in repentance so that, Lord, there will never be anything between you and us. We will keep what we used to call short accounts with God. And we will walk in your ways always. Because, Lord, we don't want the oracles that we read through the prophet to be ours in this generation. And I don't think we are untouchable from that just because we're part of the new covenant. Certainly you respond to us and relate to us differently now because of the blood of Christ. But Lord, as we are in your word today, make us humble and submissive and responsive to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ezekiel 33 and 34 from last week developed uh, Yahweh's oracles against the nations. And it ended with the announcement that Jerusalem had fallen. They hadn't known that. It had already been predicted. But it had fallen and it wasn't until they got an emissary coming from, escaping from the destroyed Jerusalem that they found out the truth. And what year was that? 586 B.C., right? Good number to remember in your head for history, Bible history. Chapter 34 brought us the eschatological, that's a big 50 cent word for future announcements, that God himself would one day come and shepherd his own people again. And as we peeked into that future, we saw how Jesus was that good shepherd, drawing us into a clear understanding of his true identity as the sovereign Lord of Ezekiel. Chapter 35 now Today in, is an oracle against Edom, or as he also says, Mount Seir. Now often when a prophet refers, uh, references Mount such and such, they're referring to the high places of a people. They're places of power, often the place of their temples and their gods. Like Mount Zion is Jerusalem, right? The place of the temple and the throne of God. And these oracles of Ezekiel against the mountains of certain people are God's way of saying that Yahweh is higher and greater than the gods of their high places. And so Ezekiel had already delivered a brief oracle about Edom, against Edom, in the oracles against the foreign nations in chapter 25. Remember there it was seven nations, that hostile nations and neighbors to Israel that God spoke against. And now here in 35, we see Mount Seir, or Edom, coming into the picture. Verse 35, uh, chapter 35, verse 1. The, Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said. Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir. Prophesy against it and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Mount Seir. And I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your towns into ruins and you will be desolate. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Remember, underline that. That's one of the reoccurring themes in Ezekiel. Because you have harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax, therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will give you over to bloodshed and it will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, bloodshed will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a desolate waste and cut off from it all who come to it, all who come and go. I will fill your mountains with the slain. Those killed by the sword will fall on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. 
I will make you desolate forever. Your towns will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And the rest of the chapter is more of the same. Some commentators wonder why a whole chapter is devoted to Edom at, the, at, a, at this particular stage in the development of the book of Ezekiel. And especially since it's already been mentioned uh, in, and, and because of it, it was placed two chapters earlier and between two chapters in the restoration of Israel. This leads some commentators to think that maybe this is a later editorial edition. But scholar John Taylor suggests that separating this oracle out from the others in, in the chapters before lets it stand alone as a means to tell the nations that the Lord, the sovereign Lord, misses nothing. Makes me think of some people that I know who recently have gone through some horrible assaults from other people. People who they thought had their backs. Have you ever been in that kind of a place? Has that ever happened to you? Well, chapter 35 here reminds us that the Lord doesn't miss anything. He sees and hears all. So even if everyone fails you, Worse yet, you were betrayed by everyone. The Lord has your back. He is present. And he is there for you. Chapter 35 concludes with Edom getting what's coming to them with these familiar words in verse 15. Because you rejoiced with the inheritance of Israel, when the inheritance of Israel became desolate, that is how I will treat you. You will be desolate, Mount Seir. You and all of Edom. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Edom is associated with Babylon because back in chapters 15 and 25, Edom helped Babylon destroy Jerusalem and carry the last two tribes into exile. Because of their betrayal, when Edom finally gets punished by the Lord, that's when the Israelites believed that their exile would be over and that they would be restored back to the promised land. But we know from past weeks that this restoration actually points future to Christ and then to Pentecost, to the book of Acts, and God through the Holy Spirit gathering the remnant of his people back to Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost. From all the different places in the ancient world where Judah had been exiled, not just Babylon, not just Persia, but everywhere. Just read the list of nations that are there. You'll see where the people went to in the extent of their exodus. Or, sorry, their exile. And it includes, in Pentecost, Gentiles, too. And that was the point of the gospel of Jesus, wasn't it? In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, the apostle gives us some clear insight as to what took place. The mystery of Christ, which was not known to the people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit... To God's holy apostles and prophets, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. What happened, that happened ultimately, as Paul states, when the Holy Spirit was revealed at Pentecost. And what happened after that? Well, that remnant of Jews go back to the nations that they came from and they go and they evangelize those Gentile nations with the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the good shepherd. Now we move into chapter 36. 
Now, Ezekiel's promise of restoration for Israel began back in chapter 34 with the promise of a new Davidic leadership that would come over Israel. In fact, the sovereign Lord says that he himself will become their good shepherd, their Davidic king, their Davidic Messiah over the house of Israel. And he will gather his sheep back. Because chapter 36 takes up that hope again, first with the promise of a renewed people, but also with a a renewed people dwelling in a new land. Verses 1 to 7 are a promise that the nations around Israel, Edom especially here, we see, will get what's coming to them for mocking Israel's God. Look at chapter 36, verses 1 to 3. Son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say, Mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. The enemy said of you, aha! The ancient heights have become our possession. Then in verse 8 to 15, we have the promise of a future restoration of the mountains of Israel, meaning that the remnant of Israel begin to repopulate the land. They they, they take from their exiles, they come, they rest- uh, their provisions are restored, their place of worship is restored. Verse 8, but you, mountain of Israel, you will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. I am concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will cause many people to live on you. Yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the, and the ruins rebuilt. So you can feel the hope redeveloping for the people who are there with, with Ezekiel. And then we get into verse 16 to 21, and Yahweh gets a little bit his, his, historical. And he explains again why he had to punish his people. There's hope, but don't forget is another, another way of looking at it. Verse 16, again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And whenever they went among the nations, they profaned my name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. The sovereign Lord makes it very clear. Israel defiled their promised land by their conduct. They shed blood with their worship of idols. They profaned the holy name of the Lord their God among the nations they went to. Again, friends, sin to God is a big deal, isn't it? Ezekiel 18 told us that every man, woman, and child will be responsible for their own sins. No one will be judged for another person's sin. And we need to be repentant because your sin, my sin, defiles the name of the Lord. Meaning it defiles the reputation of the Lord among the people that we live beside. Listen to verse 22. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, restore you. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I have proved holy through you before their eyes. Here's the question before you and me today. Something for us to consider. What has your conduct been like among the people of your life network? Think that through for a moment. We all know that we all have a life network. We're all surrounded by certain relationships and activities that make up our life. What has your conduct been like among the people of your life network? Do you realize that they associate you with God, right? Like Israel was supposed to be, you and I are the living embodiment of the Lord among the people that we live beside every day. And if the people in your life network see you compromising your integrity, dishonoring your spouse, not disciplining your kids, cheating on a test, slacking off at work, if they don't see you making church a priority in your life and in your family's life, if they hear you badmouthing the church, if they see you wasting your retirement years, if they hear you cursing and swearing when you're frustrated, if impatience makes you difficult to work with, if you don't care for them when they are in pain, if they never get prayed for by you when they tell you what their burden is, if they never hear you share with them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that will taint the Lord's reputation among them. Because you represent him, don't we? They'll think, is God not Lord enough to inspire godly conduct out of you? They'll say, what good is it to be a Christian? And that's not really a question, that's more of an indictment, isn't it? It's like the nations say in verse 2, aha, your God is so useless, you don't even obey him. That's why the Lord takes sin so seriously. Because his name is at stake. Not you, but his name. And that's why the Lord had to do to Israel what he did. But he didn't leave them hopeless. He didn't leave them without a solution, did he? Listen to verse 24, 36, 24. For I will take you out of the nations... I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will know, no, then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God and I will save you from all your uncleanness. For his namesake. Again, that's ultimately pointing Future, isn't it? It's prophetic future. Ultimately, it's pointing to Pentecost, a new heart and a new spirit. And did you hear verse 27? I will put my spirit in you, 
and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Have you ever been moved before? I'm not meaning has anyone ever cried at a movie before, okay? Uh, I know a lot of us guys get that little nudge from our wives. Oh, I see you crying. That's not what I'm meaning. Not meaning that kind of being moved. I mean, have you ever felt compelled, urged on, perhaps guided? Have you ever felt an inner compulsion to do a certain thing or to, to go a certain direction? That's what you and I need from God when it comes to our obedience, isn't it? Verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, naturally, you and I don't get that kind of help from God in the natural. See, when your thoughts and actions are not submitted to the lordship of Jesus, then you are living in the natural as opposed to supernatural living in the spirit. It's not uncommon for real Christians to live in the natural from time to time. But if that is the only way that you live, then you should probably ask whether you have been born again yet. Have you ever been regenerated, transformed into what the Bible calls a new creation in Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That means that the natural you is utterly gone and a new supernatural you is present because of Christ. Now the opposite is also true. If anyone is not in Christ, he is still an old creation. The old you is still here. There is no supernatural new you yet. That means that you won't have the supernatural ability to be moved to follow the Lord's decrees and laws. Why? Because you don't have the indwelling influence and guidance and power of the Holy Spirit to do so in the natural. So this is what it looks like. This is you. Put yourself in there. Me. Natural me. This is the way that you were born into this world. You were the center of it. And the way that you are moved to form and interact with the different relationships and activities you, you have is out of a need to please yourself, to please me. Even your good works are done out of an inclination uh, to self-satisfy your own self-worth, to feel good about living the life you live. This is how it works. Before you accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, your relationship with God was distant, and actually the Bible calls it hostile. It was as if God was on the outside looking in. Even if you wanted to get God's help with one of your relationships, for instance, or one of the activities of your life, your attempt was to try to beg God or maybe even bribe God with your good behavior. Lord, if you just do this one thing for me or for my friend, I'll go to church every single Sunday. Well, at least Christmas and Easter for sure. But God will still be on the outside looking in with that kind of relationship to him in the natural. And when you, when you didn't need him, when you don't need him anymore or want him anymore, you can just kind of conveniently push him out of your life again. That's life in the natural. 
But if you accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the Bible says that you become a new creation in Christ. God gives you a new heart, as Ezekiel prophesied, so that God the Holy Spirit can come and take up residence in you. And that puts the throne of God in your heart of hearts. And that's the work of the new creation in you. That makes you supernatural inside. And you're not just incorporating the Holy Spirit into your original natural heart. That won't do. He has to give you a new heart for that to happen. The kind of heart that, that can accommodate the Holy Spirit. He can't abide in the original natural heart that you were born with. And you cannot do that by your own power. You cannot acquire that by your own good works. God has to make you this sacred space so that you can become the dwelling place of the Most High God. In the Old Testament, God had the tabernacle and the temple as his dwelling place. But now, because of Pentecost, God has you. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, with his Spirit and Christ's throne in you, his Lordship becomes your priority. And along with the Holy Spirit comes an unction where he moves you to want to obey. He activates your conscience and your will to want to obey him with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. Have you felt that before? That should be part of the supernatural life in the Spirit. So the way that you conduct your life then reveals the condition of your heart not just to yourself, but to everyone in your life network. It answers the question of who's in your heart the most. Who owns it? Who controls it? It reveals who you're obeying. And that was begun at Pentecost. And us, 2,000 years later, get the benefit of that great coming event. So some of this prophecy in Ezekiel 36 is far-reaching into the future of, of Ezekiel. Pentecost was 500 years into his future. But you know, with prophecy, there is sort of this bizarre, continual unfolding that takes place, what scholars call the already-but-not-yet effect. Let me describe what that is. See, when you read the prophecies of Scripture, there is this, there, you'll see in here, and you'll see an immediate unfolding of a, of a, into the present, if you will, or at least the near present day of that prophecy. So it is uttered by like Ezekiel, and then it's sort of, there's a near present unfolding of it. Like in the prophecies of Ezekiel where certain parts are prophesied and there's an immediate effect that unfolds in the days in which he lives. Like how they, they saw the city prophesied about the destruction and the temple and how that actually happened in their lifetime, within a matter of years. That unfolded. And that re represents the already part of the unfolding narrative of prophecy. And then, in a little bit more distant future, but not all at once, we saw Israel's neighbors, their the other nations, the ones that mocked them and God, how they were destroyed by Babylon, just like the prophecies had foretold. But those were not in the immediate, but in the, the close future. 
sense of unfolding. And then there's the not yet parts. Like the Davidic shepherd part that we read about last week. And the the promise of a new heart and a new spirit this week. Those parts of the prophecy didn't unfold right away. Or even in the very near future. It took a distant future for them to unfold. At Pentecost in Christ. Ezekiel 36. Listen to it. Verse 30. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the day I cleanse you from all your sins. I will resettle your towns. And the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate. In the sight of all who pass through it. They will say this land was laid waste. because uh, This land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. The cities that were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, and now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Once again, I will yield to Israel's plea and do this for them. I will make their people as numerous as sheep, as numerous as the flocks, for, uh, for offerings at Jerusalem during their appointed festivals. So will the ruined cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So is this already or not yet prophecy? Is it a future near the prophet or way off in the distance? Maybe even beyond our time yet. I believe that God designed prophecy to be deliberately cryptic. And anyone who says they have their prophetic timelines all figured out and they're flawless, you should probably ignore them. Because you can't nail down, you can't come down hard and fast on a particular end times timeline. Prophecies are just not that clear. They're cryptic. Specifically because of this already but not yet nature of prophecy. But what do we know? Well, we know in 586 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar finally besieged for a third time the city of Jerusalem and destroyed it and the temple within it and the last of Israel's population is exiled or or killed off by Nebuchadnezzar and they're exiled off to Babylon and varying countries around them. The The nation or what was left of it thought that all hope was gone for them. The Lord had abandoned them. Israel's status as the covenant people, you have to understand this, or so they thought, was based on their possession of their ancestral promised land of Canaan. As long as they were in Canaan, as long as they were in the promised land, they were still God's people. They were good. And as long as a Davidic dynasty was still alive, a king's following David's line, then they were good. And as long as the presence of Yahweh was still manifest in the holy of holies, in the temple, they were good. With all that being gone now, though, the Israelites believed that they had absolutely been abandoned by God. But Ezekiel reassures his fellow exiles that Yahweh has not forgotten his covenants with them. His ancient promises still stand. Therefore, the population will be gathered back to the promised land. Their hearts will be transformed and their king will be restored to the throne. Because after all, God's name was at stake, right? Some of those conditions became a reality in the return of the exiles to rebuild and restore the city during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some of our small groups just finished going through Nehemiah. 
Even after the Persians dethroned the Babylonians, Israel had begun to rebuild, but they never really fully became all that that prophecy of Ezekiel just talked about. But all those positive returns were not yet. Not yet fulfilled then. They awaited a distant unfolding and fulfillment, didn't they? Some of it unfolded in Jesus and at Pentecost, but there are still some of God's promises in there that are still not yet, even for us. And as you read these last verses, I know the temptation that some people have to want to read their version of the millennium in the the timeline into this because they read about the reference here to Eden. But no matter how the actual timeline will play out, and again, I think prophecy is deliberately cryptic, We can all agree, because we've read the end of the Bible, that there will be a global Edenic kingdom with a new Jerusalem in a new earth forever. Amen? That's our future. That's our hope. That's not yet. But it will be one day. Listen to Revelation 21. Revelation 21 verses 1 to 3 states, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. See if this sounds familiar to Ezekiel. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's our future, friends. Amen? That's our future. It is not yet, but it will be one day our present. But you know what? This already not yet nature of prophecy leaves us somewhere often. Even if you weren't really aware of this already not yet thing. It's important to appreciate and be mindful of when reading prophecy That some things are still yet in the future. But there is as well. And I wouldn't say dangerous, but okay, I'll even say dangerous. The not yet aspect of prophecy can create apathy and laxness in us. Have you felt it? I mean, it's been 2,000 years, folks, since Jesus said, I'm coming again. It's been 2,000 flipping years. See, until the very last days begin to unfold, there really isn't anything left outstanding in the prophetic events calendar. And because it's been 2,000 years already since the last prophecy happened in 70 AD when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed again, we tend to forget to be vigilant. We tend to forget to be excited about what is yet to come and, that there, and, and the urgency that there needs to be within us to get the gospel to the kingdoms of the world. But there is something that we have that makes it important that we remain attentive and active until the end comes. The Holy Spirit. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is what to come. We need to let him move us. 
folks. We need to have a very rich and deep relationship with God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, so that we can know his moving in us, so that we can know how he moves and we can hear him say, move here, go there, do this, don't do that. We need to have a relationship with God through his Holy Spirit so that we will know his moving. To be engaged in kingdom activity within your life network is so vitally important. But it will not happen unless you are engaged with the Holy Spirit and you're listening to him to say, move here, move there. Go into your interests, go into your family, go into your work, go into your friends, go into your church, go into the world this way, and we obey. Folks, we need that kind of relationship with God. A new heart, a new spirit, his spirit within us. Let's pray. Lord, I happen to know because I've known you long enough that the glory of God is awaiting us, not just in the future, but right now. Lord Jesus, you said in your great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, you asked the Father, you said, Father, I want them to have the glory that you've given me. And that glory is through the Holy Spirit. So that we can make a name for you in the world that we live. And our immediate world, Lord, is our life network. I want you to think of your life network today, people of God. I want you to think about who's in the center of it. Who's going to get the glory today? You or the King of glory who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns over this world, whose word is sure, whose promises are faithful? Who will you serve today? Who will you obey? Whose glory will you seek? Lord God, today, among your people, we feel you moving by your Holy Spirit. We ask you in these last days to move even stronger within us, to move us to be a people who obey, who are keen to obey your word. And Lord, though we don't know if that's that's enough to move our culture away from godliness. Lord, it's enough to move us away from godliness, godlessness. It's enough to move us away from godlessness and therefore it gives us an opportunity to speak about you and declare your glorious name among the people of our life network. Lord, we repent of the ways in which we have not exalted and glorified your name among the people of our life network. We repent for ways in which we've lived that have not brought glory to you and have brought shame on your name. We repent for not being vocal about 
the good news of Jesus and believing enough to pray for people who are burdened and hopeless. Forgive us for not praying for them and with them. Lord, today would you fill us with your Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us. Be in us. Move us, we pray. In the precious, powerful name of God our Savior.